Again, good morning. The U.S. recorded its first laboratory-confirmed case of COVID on January 20th, 2020, two years and four days ago. We have endured two years of the pandemic, and COVID-related deaths have surpassed 5.6 million globally and 889,000 in the U.S. The U.S. ranks 22nd in deaths per million at 2,575. Sweden, if you all recall Sweden, uh, early in the pandemic was excoriated by the world press. Sweden ranks 63rd with 1,514 deaths per million. Again, the U.S. were 22nd at 2,575. Sweden is 63rd at 1,514. The human toll resulting from economic sh shutdowns is incalculable. The erosion of freedom and growing divisions within society, exacerbated by vaccine mandates, should concern us all. The latest variant, Omicron, is sweeping the planet as a weary public prays for it to be the last. The purpose of today's forum is to discuss the global pandemic response the current state of knowledge regarding early and hospital treatment, vaccine efficacy and safety, what we did right, what went wrong, what should be done now, and what needs to be addressed long-term. There's still much to learn about the coronavirus, COVID the disease, and COVID vaccines. Early in the pandemic, our knowledge was minimal. But even then, because of what we learned from Italy and the Princess cruise ship, it was becoming obvious COVID was a disease that targeted the old and those with certain comorbidities. Instead of using that information, public health officials pursued a one-size-fits-all response that relied heavily on creating a state of fear to ensure compliance. They also kept moving the goalposts. For example, we went from a two-week shutdown to flatten the curve to zero COVID. For masks weren't necessary to a single mask wasn't adequate. From a vaccine that would prevent infection to a vaccine that reduced severity of the disease. And as goalposts were moving, different viewpoints were being crushed. At the very moment when outside-the-box thinking was required, the internet could have been used by practicing physicians to share their experiences as they developed effective therapies. The internet was used instead to censor discussion and vilify anyone with a different opinion. Until COVID, a fundamental principle of medicine was early detection, allowed for early treatment, which produced better results. Two years in the pandemic, the compassionless guideline from the NIH, if you test positive, is to essentially do nothing. Go home, isolate yourself in fear, and pray you don't require hospitalization. It has also been sound medical advice when dealing with a serious illness to get a second opinion, maybe even a third. Today is about getting that long overdue second opinion. 
So just a couple housekeeping items here. First of all, I want to thank everybody for coming to the event uh, here in person. I want to thank the news outlets that are live streaming this, OAN, Rumble. Uh, but in particular, I want to thank the courageous doctors that have shown the compassion to actually treat patients, to struggle to provide the information there that is being kept from the American public, and suffer the vilification, the censorship, the suppression, the termination, the lawsuits that has come with their courage. Now, one thing I hope everybody realizes how highly qualified this panel is. Um, I intended, quite honestly, for this event to hold me no more than a half a dozen. But uh, it was pretty hard to turn down the offers of eminently qualified individuals coming here to share their, their information, their opinion with the American public. So just so you understand how I met these individuals. Uh, very early on in the pandemic, uh, I, was, I was witnessing videos being posted by other courageous doctors that were thinking outside the box and coming up with a different theory of what this disease really was. Um, they started posting their videos and they started, those videos started being taken down. And somehow, I really don't know how, I, I got involved in uh, connected to a group of global doctors and medical researchers on, on a number of different uh, email sites. And I, I rarely chimed in, but I was just listening to the flourishing of information, the sharing of different studies, um, completely different from what I was hearing in the mainstream media. I'm not quite sure how all these experts came together. I'm, I'm hoping to ask them, they can kind of tell us exactly how that happened. But again, I, I just want to thank them for being doctors, for being medical research, for being, being medical researchers, for being academicians that have had the courage uh, to withstand all the criticism. Now, I do want to point out that we invited uh, folks from the other side of the uh, narrative, uh, federal health agencies their heads or some representative from them, the CEOs or some representative from the vaccine manufacturers. Uh, they decided not to show up, which I think is, uh, you know, somewhat telling, but uh, also very disappointing. Now, I do have, uh, I want to report that uh, one individual I, I invited was uh, Dr. John Raymond from the Medical College of Wisconsin. And uh, Dr. Raymond, uh, again, this was short notice. I don't blame him for not being able to disrupt his schedule and be able to travel here right away. But he was at least uh, uh, courteous enough to send me a letter, which I will enter into my own personal record on our website. I just want to read two of the, of the 10 points that he made. The second point is what we need to do is to holistically evaluate our strengths and gaps in medicine, science, society, and, and policy with humility, integrity, and curiosity so that our next public health response is efficient, is seamless, and inextricably integrates decisions about human health, our economy, the needs of our communities, and the future of our children. His third point is for each of us, none excluded, to openly, honestly, and with respect and compassion explore how, where, and why the roots of division are springing up within our nation, our communities, 
and our institutions. I don't think there's an American that can disagree with what Dr. Raymond wrote. And I also have to say this is exactly what we are attempting to do here today. So again, I, I want to thank Dr. Raymond. Uh, sorry he couldn't come here today. What I'm hoping is that we can assemble probably not as large a panel because a lot of these folks are in here for the anti-mandate rally, but maybe a few of you would come to Wisconsin and sit down and actually, actually have a discussion in an open dialogue, an honest uh, dialogue, because I think that'd be very important for not only the folks in Wisconsin, but for the American public. Um, now, the way this event is going to unfold is I've asked each of the presenters to uh, provide an opening statement. Uh, I, I was quite adamant about keeping it to 400 words, so this should move pretty quickly. Um, following that, we'll have an open, pretty free-flowing discussion. Uh, I've got a bunch of questions. They will question each other. Uh, we'll have opportunity for the press to ask questions. Uh, we'll have some opportunity for some members of the, of the audience also to step forward because the other people we have the opportunity to have them here. Uh, we also have the opportunity for the viewing audience to ask questions through our, our, our Rumble webpage. Uh, now, for the audience, I do want, and I'm telling everybody, keep your answers, keep your statements succinct. There's a lot of ground to cover here. And uh, Dr. McCulloch will be my co-moderator here, and we'll try and keep this going as, as, as quickly as possible. Um, so with that, I think we should start the, the opening statements, and we'll start with uh, Dr. Peter McCulloch. By the way, I asked the, everybody to submit their bios in 75 words. Uh, their qualifications are so extensive, it was very difficult for many of them. Uh, I apologize, I've cut them down to 75 words. But uh, you can kind of fill in some of the gaps. But uh, Dr. Peter McCulloch is an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, and a leader in the medical response of the COVID-19 disease disaster. He published Pathophysiological Basis and Rationale for Early Outpatient Treatment of SARS-CoV-2 Infection, the first multi-drug protocol for ambulatory patients infected with SARS-CoV-2 in the American Journal of Medicine, which he subsequently updated in reviews in cardio cardiovascular medicine. He has more than 650 PubMed listings, 52 on COVID-19, and has commented extensively on the medical response. And again, this just barely scratches the surface of Dr. McCullough's uh, qualifications. So, Dr. McCullough. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to present uh, now for uh, a second time in the U.S. Senate. And uh, I have organized my comments along the four pillars of pandemic response. I presented this to America November 19th, 2020, in the uh, Department of Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Subcommittee on early treatment that was one of two historic Senate uh, subcommittee hearings led by Senator Ron Johnson. And in that hearing, I presented the concept that our country should have always had a balanced approach to responding to the pandemic along four major principles. The first is to limit the spread of the virus. We quickly learned that this virus was a respiratory virus, that it spread from someone who is sick with symptoms to someone who's susceptible, who could actually acquire the infection, and they themselves become symptomatic. We learned early on that the virus is not spread from an asymptomatic person to another asymptomatic person. It was always symptomatic to susceptible 
person. And for those reasons, we had an opportunity on contagion control, but our efforts to do so uh, were extremely limited. You can see the type of effort to limit the spread of control regarding hand sanitizer. It's not a hand infection. We quickly learned that it's not a hand infection. It's not spread by hands or pizza boxes or other objects. It was actually spread by uh, an aerosol in the air. And uh, later on in this proceedings, we've asked uh, Dr. Bhattacharya from Stanford to present a brief video on the Great Barrington Declaration because he led that effort with others that addressed some fundamentals on pillar number one. Pillar number two is the pillar of early treatment. And I think everyone in this room could understand there are only two bad outcomes with COVID-19, hospitalization and death. And if everybody in this room and everyone in the nation understood that they could get a respiratory illness and survive it in the comfort of their own home, assisted by medications in some individuals who were at high risk for that outcome, they could get along with that and understand that America would get through this illness together. And as we sit here today, there are 217,000 papers in the peer-reviewed published literature in PubMed. 94,000 of them deal with hospitalization and death as an outcome and in hospital treatment. 26,279 deal with vaccines and 1,417 deal with treatment. And a small fraction of that is early treatment. We're gonna hear from experts today on the principles of early treatment based on drugs used in combination with a signal of benefit and acceptable safety to be used under the, uh, the under the guidance of the precautionary principle that this is a mass casualty event and we cannot wait for large randomized trials that are not forthcoming. And we certainly can't wait for guidelines that depend on those randomized trials. The third pillar is hospital care. We are going to hear today from experts who have a, a tremendous experience, uh, some in the outpatient and the inpatient realm in the continuum of care, and others exclusively on inpatient care. But I can tell you, as a doctor, making an observation, being in a large academic medical center currently in Dallas, Texas, but also throughout my career, to this day, we're two years into the pandemic, there is not a single hospital in America that is holding itself out as a center of excellence for the treatment of COVID-19. Yet those same very medical centers hold themselves out as experts in cardiovascular care or cancer care. There's still not a single academic medical center there in the, in the uh, United States today that has an early treatment program or even has continuity of care of patients going from the, the outpatient to the inpatient and back to the outpatient realm. The fourth pillar is vaccination. In vaccination, uh, as we see it today, uh, has been uh, the central uh, effort of our federal relief in COVID-19. And we're going to have a very careful review of vaccination. In fact, mass discrimination, another term that applies to that is indiscriminate vaccination. Now, I can tell you, speaking for the doctors around this table, we widely use vaccines as part of our clinical practice. This is a part of medicine. It is a standard accepted part of medicine. We have over 70 vaccines that are used in clinical practice, and they do work to help prevent the binary outcome of getting a disease, particularly a disease that is a low prevalence disease or a disease that one yet has not acquired. 
but never in human history have we widely applied vaccinations into the middle of a widely prevalent pandemic where people are falling ill, recovering, and falling ill again. And we will hear about vaccines uh, and their role in pandemic response. So I've set the table. These are the four pillars of pandemic response, and I'll turn it back over to Senator Johnson. Thank you, Dr. McCulloch. Our next presenter is uh, Dr. Ryan Cole. Dr. Cole is CEO and Medical Director of Cole Diagnostic, serves clinicians throughout Idaho and the nation with expert pathology diagnoses and patient-centered care. Dr. Cole completed his residency in anatomic and, and clinical pathology at the Mayo Clinic, where he was chief fellow during his surgical pathology fellowship, followed by a year as chief fellow at the Acker, Ackerman Academy of Dermatopathology in New York City on the direction of world-renowned dermapathologist, the late A. Bernard Ackerman. Having seen over a half a million pathology cases in his practice, he is uniquely suited to provide answers quickly and accurately, and I apologize for mispronouncing all these medical terms. <laughs> Dr. Cole. Uh, thank you, Senator, and thank you to my esteemed colleagues, and I must commend you at uh, pronouncing those actually quite well, so thank you. Um, it's an honor to be here. Um, I'd like to start really quick with a story. So a uh, high-risk individual approaches me, uh, 50 years old, obese, type 1 diabetic, calls me, I have COVID. This was about a year ago. What do I do? Help, help. I'm going to the ER. My oxygen's 86. I have excruciating pain in my lungs. So I said, you're going to the pharmacy. Don't go to the ER. I called in some early treatment medications of the drugs which shall not be named. Said individual calls me uh, a couple hours later and says, you know that excruciating 9 out of 10 lung pain? It's now 2 out of 10, 6 hours later. Well, I know the mechanisms of the medication I prescribed. A few hours later, in the next morning, he calls me. He says, you know that oxygen saturation of 86? It's now 98%. I said, isn't that fantastic? Early treatment works. That individual's my brother. I am my brother's keeper. Now this virus we have known, as, we, as much as we've been told it's a novel virus, viruses are novel. <coughs> this is 80% similar to a virus we experienced two decades ago. There's not a whole lot novel about this, <coughs> other than the fact that a few sequences are different. But we're physicians and scientists, and we understand virology. We understand how disease works. So an upper respiratory infection, a virus, will replicate in the body for only about a week. At that point, you only have residual parts of the virus. So these tests that pick up, oh, you're positive still, you're positive still. No, those are the car parts, not the car anymore. So we have a week of intervention to where we can maybe try to intervene and stop the viral replication. Beyond that, we're really just spitting in the wind. Beyond that, then the virus and the phase of the disease becomes an inflammatory one, and we know with this particular disease, a clotting one. Well, in medicine for eons, we have known how to treat inflammation and clotting. So the simple construct or the simple concept that there's nothing we can do, go home, let your lips turn blue, is a false construct. It just takes the will to say, we're smart individuals. I sit here with an esteemed team of bipartisan colleagues from all walks of medicine and politics and life that are highly intelligent that know how to treat a simple upper respiratory infection and the things, the sequelae that happen after the virus is replicated. So yes, I am my brother's keeper. Yes, I am a scientist. Yes, your 
privileged and I'm honored to be in a room of such intelligent people that know that there is treatment for this disease. Early treatment saves lives. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cole. Our next presenter is Dr. Harvey Risch. Dr. Risch is a professor of epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. He has been a university epidemiologist for more than 40 years and is a fellow of the American College of Epidemiology and a member of the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering. After getting his MD degree, he completed a PhD in mathematical modeling of infectious epidemics. He has published more than 400 scientific research papers that have been cited more than 44,000 times. Uh, I just quick little aside here. Uh, Dr. Risch and Dr. McCulloch joined me with uh, Dr. George Freed, who can't be with us today, in November of 2020 uh, in my first hearing on early treatment. Following that, uh, the New York Times published a article, a column written by the Democrat witness of that hearing, Dr. Ashish Jha, who had never treated a COVID patient. I actually read an article later, he holed up in his apartment for like over a year uh, until he got a vaccine. Uh, but the New York Times titled that paper or that column, The Snake Oil Salesman of the Senate. Uh, I want people to know that because as you listen to Dr. McCulloch, as you listen to Dr. Risch, uh, ask yourself, do, do they really seem to be snake oil salesmen to you? They seem to be eminently qualified professionals that again, in Dr. McCulloch's case, has had the courage and compassion to actually treat COVID patients. Dr. Risch. Thank you, Senator, colleagues, listeners. It's my honor to be addressing you today and to answer questions later. Uh, we heard at the beginning of the pandemic that one of the medications that has been used in early treatment, hydroxychloroquine or HC, uh, HCQ, was a game changer and would be effective in the treatment of COVID outpatients starting during the first few days of the illness. And then we heard study after study and media report after media report saying that HCQ doesn't work. These negative claims continued for months until the media got bored with all this and then acted as if the case were closed. However, this was a sham. The media reports never covered how the negative studies were actually fake studies. Well, they did cover the surgisphere fraud, though the study that was published that was retracted, but that managed to change the WHO's policy before it got retracted. And the media never covered how the randomized trials that were put out that were supposedly informative about the lack of, of benefit of hydroxychloroquine had hid their positive results, were designed for low-risk people who never had any real risk for hospitalization or death outcomes, were not blinded, or had no idea who their internet participants really were, or any of the, the other numerous flaws that made them essentially irrelevant. And the media studiously avoided covering the 10 proper trials of hydroxychloroquine outpatient use that showed significant benefit for hospitalization and mortality. And just as a quick aside, the top two figures are for hydroxychloroquine for hospitalization risk and mortality risk. To the left of the vertical line means benefit. The diamond means how big the error, the range of possible values are. There's very significant 50% redu reduced risk for hospitalization, 75% reduced risk of mortality. And just for comparison, you can see very similar results for ivermectin in the bottom two trials. Okay? This is real evidence. This is real scientific evidence. 
Now, the media has not reported any of these studies, but that does not make them non-existent. These studies involved, the hydroxychloroquine studies, involved more than 40,000 patients, including nationwide studies in two countries. So we see here that early hydroxychloroquine use dramatically reduces the risk of hospitalization and mortality. Now, we could later or never, if you want, discuss randomized versus non-randomized trials, the scientific issues involved in that. But what you've seen here is essentially scientific proof. Given that, why aren't doctors across the U.S. actually pre prescribing hydroxychloroquine as part of early outpatient treatment? Well, in fact, early in 2020, doctors did start using hydroxychloroquine in outpatients. But this was short-circuited by an act of FDA and BARDA employees to use the emergency use authorization regulations to block hydroxychloroquine use in outpatients, except in randomized trials. And these trials that are the same ones that would be cut off by participant fear because of the surges fear papers. And then the FDA mounted its biggest fraud of all times. by putting up this warning. This warning says, FDA cautions against the use of hydroxychloroquine in outpatients outside of the hospital setting. But then, in the justification, it says, we base this on information to treat hospitalized patients. Hospital disease, as we'll hear, and as we know from two years of dealing with COVID, is a completely different illness treated with different drugs, different medications in the hospital. Outpatient disease is flu-like. Hospital disease is a florid pneumonia. <clears throat> and so the fact that the FDA would base recommendations and warnings on hospital disease, which is a totally different disease than outpatient disease, is a fraud. This website is still there today and constitutes a, an outright fraud. Okay? This basically scared everyone across the country against using this on the basis of this fraudulent website. Now, Senator Johnson has twice demanded from the FDA by, in writing to release the data that they relied upon to make this claim that of warning, and twice the FDA has refused. So at this point, we know it works. We have lots of medicines, not just hydroxychloroquine, not just ivermectin for that matter, that need to be used, and the FDA has to be held accountable for this website. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Risch. We're going to change the order a little bit. We're going to go to Pierre Corey first, and then with, to you, Dr. Parks. Uh, the reason I want to go to Dr. Corey first is to just point out, I didn't say this uh, initially, but the, the viewpoints expressed by all these individuals are their viewpoints. Uh, one thing I have certainly noticed as being part of this group is they don't all agree. Uh, sometimes they, they disagree quite strenuously, and there's nothing wrong with that. Again, I'll, I'll point out there's so much we don't know. I would have liked to have seen a much larger dose of modesty coming out of our federal health officials and the legacy media and, and big tech when it came to, we would, we would be so much better off if, if uh, there was robust debate and discussion. Uh, so anyway, uh, these are two individuals that differ slightly in terms of uh, what uh, drug they, they prefer. So let me go to Dr. Pierre Corey. Uh, he's a pulmonary and critical care medicine specialist and a former associate professor, professor and chief of the critical care service at the University of Wisconsin, which is how I first noticed him. 
Uh, during COVID, he co-founded and serves as the President and Chief Medical Officer of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, a nonprofit organization dedicated to developing effective treatment protocols. He has published over 10 peer-reviewed manuscripts on COVID-19 and is considered one of the world's clinical experts on the role of ivermectin in early treatments. Uh, as a further introduction, I, I did become aware of Dr. Corey uh, early in the pandemic. Uh, as I would put on my first hearing, to just put things in perspective, we had Johnny Anitas, so we had a bunch of uh, Emily qualified individuals just talking about this disease versus others in terms of mortality rates, that type of thing. But a few days before the, the hearing, I heard of uh, Dr. Corey and his groups recommending corticosteroids uh, as an in-hospital treatment, and it intrigued me. So I invited him, he testified uh, virtually as we were doing back in May. Uh, I had doctors come up to me afterwards crediting me with saving their patient's life because they had listened to Dr. Corey. Uh, six, seven months later, after the New York Times called these gentlemen and me, snake oil salesman in the Senate, didn't deter me, I had Dr. Corey come back and, and talk about his group's work on ivermectin. Uh, his impassioned opening statement, which I think was prompted by my ranking member's insults, uh, basically called him a partisan hack, but, but in Senate speak, um, diplomatically, uh, fired him up, and he, he offered a, an impassioned opening statement, which was viewed by 8 million people on uh, YouTube before it was taken down and censored. So without further ado, uh, Dr. Corey. Thanks, Senator Johnson. <clears throat> Turn it on. And get it close. Okay. So... I'm really tired, I'm really tired of watching the U.S. health system's failed response to this pandemic. I cannot list, and I do not have the time today to talk about the innumerable, innumerable failed policy responses. Some of them are so obscene, absurd, illogical, and non-scientific that they're almost unspeakable. Things like, if you guys remember, not testing the vaccinated. Things like not recommending vitamin D, not checking vitamin D levels. I mean, things that are so, so fundamental, basic about science and medicine and that they've been avoided. And I have to say, I'm going to call it out. And I'm known for this. I call it like I see it. I'm calling attention to the corruption. If you look at these innumerable failed policies, there's only one way to understand them. They are literally written by pharmaceutical companies. Almost every single policy serves the interest of a pharmaceutical company. However, if you look outside the United States and look around the world, there have been numerous successes. As one of the world experts on ivermectin, let me just talk about some programs which used ivermectin. My colleagues here, as Dr. Risch just pointed out, there are a number of compounds that we've identified that are effective in early treatment. Almost all of them are repurposed or generic. But let me just say a few words about ivermectin and what it's doing around the world. Not in the United States. In the United States, it's a horse dewormer, it's horse paste, and only the illiterate, ignorant, and, and or unvaccinated use it. But let's talk about some of those successful programs. Number one, across the world, there have been programs by health ministries 
which employed either widespread distribution or test and treat programs. I'm going to list them for you today. Listen well. That medication has been shown to literally solve the pandemic in numerous regions around the world. Mexico City, December of 2020. Their state health system deployed an early test and treat program. They deployed 250 mobile testing units throughout Mexico City and they had treatment kits. They used and they collected data on 120,000 people. 50,000 of them took treatment kits and they found in those who were given treatment kits that up to 75% avoided hospitalization. Up to 75% avoided hospitalization. Their hospitals emptied. Argentina, La Misiones, another health ministry, early test and treat with significant dosing for five-day strategy. They found that over 4,000 patients, again, 75% reduction in the need for hospitalization and an 88% reduction in death. They were avoiding hospitalization and avoiding dying. The miracle of Uttar Pradesh which is not covered in any newspaper in almost any country around the world. They literally eradicated COVID from its borders. It's a poor state in Northern India using 90, over 70,000 healthcare workers distributed across the country or their state. They visited 97,000 villages. They tested early. They gave everyone ivermectin in early treatment. They gave household members ivermectin for prevention and all of the healthcare workers took it. In September of 2021, they reported that in 67 of the 75 districts, there was not one active case. Their positivity rate in the previous two and a half million tests was 0.007%, which is effectively zero. They eradicated COVID from their borders. This was not covered. This was not covered. Two newspapers in India covered this and the word ivermectin was not mentioned. The Brazilian city of Itajai, this is a paper that was published in the last two weeks. It is one of the most remarkable studies in the history of medicine because it included complete data on 160,000 people in the city of Itajai where that health ministry in June of 2020 offered its entire citizens inhabitants the opportunity to take ivermectin as a preventative. 113,000 people decided to, and something around 50,000 did not. And when you compared the two groups, even though the group that elected to take it was sicker, older, more overweight, much more disease, they got the disease 50% less, they went to the hospital 68% less, and they died 70% less often. It is a truly remarkable study using immense amounts of, of data. La Pampas, Argentina, same thing. Early test and treat program showing that the need for ICU or death fell by 50 and 60%. Peru did mass distributions long ago in 2020 until they stopped doing it because their, the administration changed, but they showed in all of the reasons where they did mass distributions, mortality rates and case counts fell. It is a highly effective medicine, even in Japan, even in Japan, the president of the Tokyo Medical Association announced to all doctors during a summer surge that they should use ivermectin in the treatment. Within weeks, the hospitalization rates reported out of Japan were lower than at any other time in the pandemic. 
That medication works. And when you deploy it in early test and treat strategy, you can cure and solve this pandemic. That information is being buried. Why is that happening, you might ask. I'm gonna say that what I've just reported today, that information is being suppressed across most of the world. United States health agency structures and policies created over the last 50 years have tightly intertwined the pharmaceutical industry with public health institutions, resulting in repeated policies placing pharmaceutical industry interest ahead of, of the welfare of US citizens. The industry's capture of our health agencies combined with their increasing financial control of most major media, social media, <clears throat> and medical journals has led to an ability to widely suppress and or distort any information which supports the efficacy of repurposed, low-cost, off-patent medicines. This war has been going on for decades, and this decades-long war on repurposed drugs waged, waged with the ever-present goal of protecting the market for novel, patented, obscenely profitable, and often barely tested and toxic medications has reached a pinnacle in COVID-19. It's an absurdity, it's an obscenity, and it's a crime. It has to stop. The impacts of their disinformation war on repurpose of medicine now constitute crimes against humanity, given the global morbidity, mortality, and loss of social, societal, and economic liberties that could have been avoided if such information would have been widely disseminated. Thank, thank you, Dr. Corey. Uh, next presenter will be Dr. Richard Urso. Dr. Urso is a medical doctor and scientist who graduated AOA with the highest honors from the University of Texas School of Medicine. He continued with five years of postgraduate training and research is, is the sole inventor of an FDA-approved wound healing drug. He's gone on to repurpose many other medications for use, usage in scarring, wound healing, inflammation, and viral infection. He is the former chief of orbital oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. He's been involved in COVID-19 since March 2020 discussing pandemic response, and he has treated over 1,600 COVID patients. A quick Dr. Orso, I've, I've, always, I've always thought of you as an ophthalmologist. You're an ophthalmologist, correct? Yeah, so uh, obviously you have you know, far greater qualifications, but, but I always did, I always was wondering, what was an ophthalmologist treating adult COVID patients? But Yeah, that's a great question. So. Um, what, what I'll, I'll get to that. I'll, I'll weave that into the story because I have a really, I think a really positive message. So it's been a great tragedy this last two years, but it really didn't have to be that way. We've really, I would say with my esteemed colleagues here, thank you for all of, all of you have, have sort of influenced a lot of my thinking. And I think all of us will say that we, ha we have this. We know how to treat diseases. So COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, Right from the get-go, right from the get-go, I spent nine years in a tissue culture lab doing inflammation scarring, uh, tumor virus work. Um, I, I really just looked at it, okay, it's a respiratory virus. Uh, what do we know about respiratory viruses? We know that respiratory viruses live about five to seven days. So I was, um, uh, uh, as I looked at this, I thought, well, that, you know, that's probably going to be true for this virus. We didn't have it cultured yet, but as it turned out, uh, in the first year of culturing the virus, I don't think any uh, live virus was cultured past eight days. It was usually about five, six days. So that held true. So back in March of 2020, a bunch of my colleagues, we assembled, we started looking at options of what we can do. Um, and it became quite evident after talking 
uh, to people in Italy and South Korea and, and elsewhere that uh, that it was a respiratory virus that was going to be causing a lot of inflammation. Uh, and then one of the unique things that was happening here, this respiratory virus for a coronavirus was causing a lot of blood clotting. So you had respiratory distress, blood clotting, and inflammation. And so as a physician, you know, those are not that, those are easy conditions to treat. The difficult part was really attacking the virus. And at the time that I first looked, uh, again in March, uh, early March 2020, I found about eight things that might work based on mechanisms. And so I think these are like, in a sense, tools in the toolbox that we ought to be trying. So my first patient, um, I treated with hydroxychloroquine, erythromycin, vitamin D, aspirin, and steroids. And I literally was shocked when I went and talked about it that, um, uh, that people were really coming at me about the steroids. Because anybody who treats respiratory syncytial virus and other viruses, the inflammatory phase is, is typically one of the most important phases. And of course, when Dr. Corey came out and said that, he, he was attacked mercilessly too. But to anybody who treats disease, it really, to me, I was kind of surprised to get attacked. I was getting attacked by people who really didn't know what they were talking about. So what I'll say is, you, as, as people who are listening, it's an inflammatory disease. It's a blood clotting disease. We have lots of medicines for inflammation. Why would you not treat inflammation as an outpatient? We have so many different drugs. Why? Would you not treat blood clotting? We have every, who, who gets admitted to the hospital for blood clotting? Maybe a day or two and then you go back out. There's lots of things we have. Attacking the virus, you have to do that in the first week. And what has happened? We actually have drugs like remdesivir, which are being applied day 15 and 20. They have no chance of working. It's a one trick pony. It has to work when the virus is replicating. So at that point, what I tell people is the problem is these drugs are, viruses and cancer cells are unique. They use our own machinery. So if you're not killing the virus, you're killing something. You're killing our mitochondria, you're killing our cells. So these are just strategies that it doesn't take a lot of thinking. As a physician, I literally am shocked to see people using these drugs, you know, two and three and four and five weeks later. They can't work. So at the end of the day, I think the message that I kind of want to send is as Dr. Cole said earlier, the virus isn't killing people. It's in a sense, it's the viral particles creating the inflammation, creating the blood clots, the cars versus the car parts. So it's not dying from the cars, you're dying from the car parts. And we've had this the whole time, and I wanna make one more, which I think is an important point. I would tell everybody, you can take any two drugs away, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and still save almost all the lives. And that's the me end message. We have so many tools in the toolbox. That's the message I want everybody to hear. We can beat this disease. I'll give you one more uh, caveat. As we went from Delta to Omicron, one of the things that happened, and we all sort of, we work together as, as a team in a sense, we recognized that Omicron did not employ TMPRSS2 binding. What that means, it's like, in a sense, the virus grabs onto cells and it uses an ACE2 receptor and it also uses another receptor called TMPRSS2, it's a serine protease. The bottom line is, we realized that a lot of the drugs that we were using for, for, for Delta, we didn't need in this new disease. That's called the practice of medicine. We adjust, we make, we, we, that's what we do. That's, that's how we've always done it. And that's why an ophthalmologist can figure this out because I had a big background in clinical medicine. I've treated over my career over 300,000 patients. 
Uh, and I'm going to say that <clears throat> I think what you found here, which I want to answer your, the last point that Dr. Uh, that Senator Johnson made is why is an ophthalmologist treating? Because patients were languishing at home. And I've treated over 1,600 patients because patients were languishing at home with no treatment for inflammation, with no treatment for respiratory distress, with no treatment for blood clotting. It's absolutely absurd, and I wasn't going to let it happen. And I, and I think, as you see in this room, all of us feel the same. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Erso. I'm going to break protocol here because I'm in charge. Um, because there's another question I have. And this is the $64,000 question, and we'll all, I'll have all of you answer it in some way, shape, or form. Why aren't other doctors using their medical skill? Why aren't they practicing medicine? Listen, I, you know, I think it's appropriate to use practice protocols. I mean, you're developing protocols, and you're practicing them. But why haven't more doctors thought outside the box and, again, have the courage and compassion to actually treat patients as opposed to follow the the compassionless guideline from NIH, just succinctly. So succinctly this, when we first came down in March, we were getting messages to go home. And some of those messages were really strong. They basically said, if you don't, if you, and this is the start, the fear came into doctors' hearts. They said in Texas, for instance, if you use PPE, that you might be criminally liable for interfering with an emergency use act. And it was pretty scary. A lot of us were like, well, what are we going to do? And we're like, well, like, I'm, 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 I guess I won't wear a mask. But that only continued. It was a coordinated attack creating fear, and doctors felt that. And many doctors are actually working in employed positions, and as time went on, they were told in no uncertain terms, if you use these dr drugs, you probably will be fired. And nobody had to tell them. They're smart people. You don't have to draw a map. Well, we'll delve in the timeline in terms of when that initial fear, and let's face it, no, there was so much we didn't know early, but then we started finding things out to the point where we are now two years later. But I want to explore that timeline with all of you in terms of, because we have to diagnose what happened. What, what, why are we today in the state, the position we're in today with all, all we have learned? But we'll, we'll cover that. I'm going to have uh, Dr. McCulloch uh, kick off our, the next portion here. I'm going to finish up just on this last bullet point on... Uh, pill pillar number uh, two, which is home treatment. And I want to see a show of hands in the room. We have roughly 100 people in the room. How many of you in the room yourself have had COVID-19? Okay, it's probably about 70% of this room. How many of you in this room, recognizing there are doctors, there are PhDs, there are attorneys, media experts, other scientists, public citizens, how many of you personally have witnessed Censorship, intimidation, or professional reprisal and damage as a result of your advocacy for patients. I want this to be recorded. That is 80% of this room have experienced something negative in their life in trying to promote and help compassionately something positive for patients suffering with a potentially fatal illness. I want to recognize um, Dr. Uh, Christina Parks, and I'm going to ask her to give a few brief comments regarding her experience. Christina Parks is a PhD in cellular molecular biology at the University of Michigan. Uh, she's been widely recognized as a leader uh, scientifically uh, in the African-American community. Dr. Parks. 
Hi, um, I just want to clarify, I do not currently work at University of Michigan. That's where I received my degree in cytokine signaling in 1999. Today, I come both as an uh, African-American as a scientist. As a scientist, it's quite baffling to me that we have an avalanche of data showing that it's the spike protein that causes the del deleterious effects of COVID. All right? So, but we don't see any problem with putting genetic material into the cells um, of our body that tell it to make tons and tons of spike protein, right? We're not adding a little bit like a traditional vaccine and then having your body make an antibody response. We've decided let's just make the body just make tons of the spike protein. And we know that the spike protein is toxic. The Ginsha lab at Georgetown showed the spike protein signals through the ACE2 receptor, which usually doesn't signal at all. And that leads to pulmonary hypertension. This is causing inflammation. Um, Evolio and at the Bristol Medical Center in the UK showed that the spike protein severely disrupts the functions of cells that support the heart. Maybe it's just me, but I want my heart cells to work right. Lee and all out of Hong Kong demonstrated the antibodies um, made to the spike protein cross-react with our own tissues so that many people, when they make antibodies to the spike protein, they're getting an autoimmune response that can be devastating. I could go on and on and on. We know the spike protein is toxic. Why are we having our bodies make it? As an African-American scientist, I'm extremely troubled about this one-size-fits-all approach to vaccination and vaccine mandates. There is now a growing body of data showing that people of African descent respond more vigorously to vaccines containing RNA viruses and may need a lower dose. This is Gregory Poland's work out of the Mayo Clinic. And basically, he showed that they have both a higher innate and a higher humoral response. And in order for those vaccines to be safe, we're looking at something like the MMR with measles, mumps, and rubella, all RNA viruses, they may need a lower dose because the higher dose, when you activate your immune system, it becomes inflammatory. If you activate it too much, it becomes hyperinflammatory. If you lack vitamin D, with most, most um, African Americans are deficient in, you cannot shut down that inflammation. So this is something that we should have been looking at and we're not looking at. We have decided to do one size fits all. Dr. Parks, ju just to k oh. keep it uh, on track, and because we're going to get to the vaccines section oh, oh, okay. I'm in sorry. a little bit, but I want your comments just very briefly on African Americans and early treatment, your understanding as a scientist. We need to have vitamin D. Right? We need to have vitamin D sufficiency. Um, in fact, uh, we need to have um, hydroxychloroquine. Not only is it it's anti-inflammatory, but it actually modulates many of the, um, the predispositions um, for diabetes and hypertension that African Americans suffer from. So re regardless of the fact that it's used as a, um, uh, like a, to, to prevent viral replication and things like that, it can actually modulate the, fat, the, the predispositions. And so why wouldn't you want to give it in order to stabilize things like blood, um, blood sugar levels and in order to stabilize but, but inflammation? Very specifically, African-Americans have double the mortality right. of non-African-Americans, and the mortalities all happen in the hospital. Are African-Americans, are they denied early treatment in the community? Well, yes, they are. My dad just died. Right? He died Friday. Couldn't get a test, couldn't get monoclonal antibodies. We treated him at home. Unfortunately, we had an oxygen machine that didn't work. So he, his blood saturation went down to the point where he was incoherent. We called EMS. They said, your problem is your oxygen machine doesn't work. They put oxygen on him. He went to 98% saturation. We moved him to the hospital. He recovered all his cognitive functions. He was doing quite well. 
but he was no longer getting medications that reduce his inflammation. He was no longer getting medications that um, blocked the histamine response. He was no longer getting the medications that he needed, and he was no longer getting um, uh, you know, um, lung steroids, and uh, he just declined and declined and declined until he passed away on Friday, and I say he passed away from lack of appropriate care. Yeah, thank did, you. Did, did you have no right to insist that your father was treated as a, as a practicing physician? I'm not, a, I'm not a physician, I'm a PhD. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. So, but, but you had no right as a family member no, they said, these are our protocols, and this is all we'll do. I mean, we asked for those things specifically. Um, in my father's case, things went fairly quickly. First, they told us we'll send him home tomorrow with oxygen. Then they changed their story, and, you know, and we asked for particular medications, and they said those weren't part of those pro or their protocol. They could not give them to us. Well, we are, we are deeply sorry, and even more deeply sorry, the fact that yours isn't the only story I've heard like that. I've heard countless stories. But Dr. McCulloch. There, there may be 800,000 stories like this. I'm going to recognize Dr. Mary Bowden. Uh, Dr. Bowden is an ear, nose, and throat specialist and a respiratory specialist uh, who previously had medical staff privileges at Houston Methodist Hospital. And I want Dr. Bowden, as an early treatment doctor, to tell us about her hospital interrelationships to her private practice and how this has influenced her life as an early treatment advocate. And put, put the mic very close to your mouth, about three okay. inches. Can you hear me? Yep. Th okay, thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, so I'm sort of the real world doctor. I don't have any, I don't have the academic credentials that the rest of these esteemed colleagues have, but I am a solo ear, nose, and throat doctor. I'm double board certified in otolaryngology and sleep medicine in Houston, Texas. And prior to COVID, I was sort of the resource for second opinions. I was who people came to to get an honest opinion before sinus surgery because I'm known to be very conservative. I use surgery as a last approach. And since the pandemic, now I have become basically one of the few resources for patients in the fourth biggest city in the country to get early treatment for COVID. Um, I, you know, it, it all started because I had patients that needed testing and they couldn't get testing. And testing was being rationed, if you remember, because we didn't have test supplies. And I was the first person in Houston to advocate the saliva test, which was great because it was contact free and we didn't run out of supplies. So my practice just became a hub for COVID because of, of that. And to date, I've run over 80,000 COVID tests. So in the last six months, I've really evolved into a early treatment uh, advocate. I've um, used a combination of medications. And up until recently, I was using monoclonal antibodies. And sadly, we can't get those anymore. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've, I just hear so many stories. At first it was, you know, my, my PCP won't see me. So they came to see me and ENT. I became the PCP. Uh, now it's people are terrified to go to the hospital. So I've, I've become the emergency room. <laughs> I'm giving high-dose IV steroids. I'm giving, you know, 25 grams of IV vitamin C. But I am keeping people out of the hospital. And I've kept over 2,000 people out of the hospital. And if you look at current statistics, 20 of those people should be dead, and they're not. So 
Um, I, I see a lot of high-risk patients. I, you know, I don't know if you saw my press conference, but I had um, you know, a woman in her late 60s, diabetic, not taking her medications, came to me with an oxygen saturation of 82%, and she came to my clinic three days in a row. She got IV steroids. I gave her 80 milligrams of solumedrol based on the FLCC protocol. Thank you. Uh, I gave her two grams of vitamin C. I gave her a slew of medications. I, I threw the kitchen sink at her because she refused to go to the hospital. And in prior times, I would say, you, you need to go to the hospital, but she refused. Um, but now she's alive and doing wonderfully. And you know, there's, it's just sickening how many patients did not receive that kind of care. And the turning point for me when I really got angry was uh, a patient that her wife reached out to me, he's trapped in the ICU, a father of six, sheriff's deputy, refused to give anything, but you know, these, these hospitals give them low-dose steroids. They give them six milligrams of dexamethasone, you know, three times a day. A lot of these hospitals won't even give breathing treatments. It's ridiculous. They won't give them the vitamins. I mean, and so basically she called me in desperation and I testified. She sued the hospital to try to get her husband the medications he needed. I testified. We won. The hospital refused to grant me privileges, even though I have a spotless record. And I was curious. <laughs> That's when it all changed for me and I became, you know, I became thrust into the public because of Methodist Hospital. But um, it's just, you know, we, I've seen a lot and I'm angry and I'm exhausted. I mean, I have one hospital I can send patients to that I feel safe to. I have one, one doctor, Dr. Joe Verone, who I trust that I'll send my patients to out of an enormous city and I'm exhausted. I can't find any doctors to help me. Um, it's, it's a huge problem. First of all, thank you, Dr. Bowden, for having the courage and compassion to treat patients and, and sharing that story. We're, we're going to come back in greater detail uh, in terms of how the treatment has evolved for those of you who are actually treating patients versus how it has not involved, evolved for over two years throughout the rest of the medical establishment. But our next uh, presenter is Dr. Harpal Mang Mangat. Uh, Mr. Mangat went to medical school at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, interned at Trinity College, Dublin, and then completed residencies at London and Oxford Universities before arriving in the U.S. in 1992, where he did the same again. He is currently in private practice in Germantown and created over a thousand and has treated over a thousand COVID-positive patients with good results. Mr. Mangat, or Dr. Mangat. Thank you very much. First of all, I'd like to compliment you on what you said. I've been through the same here in Maryland, and it's, it's horrific. But what you can do is just- Do Doctor, get your mic right about, about three inches from your- Okay. I want to thank you for sharing your experiences. I've had the same experiences. I'm a, currently a COVID center, and a lot of people call me up for everything. And it's evolved. You have to ch pick up the challenge and help the patient. And the most important thing is seeing how it has evolved. When we started, we didn't understand this disease. And what I've learned from it, it's a two-step disease. The first step is the early phase, the viral phase, and there are generic antivirals, which aren't as expensive as molinavir or the uh, other drug, which can be used. But the whole point is after you have day seven to 10, you enter the immune or the inflammatory response. And the only way to treat it is high-dose steroids. And we've got to be careful as physicians because 
one of the problems that Peter Corey was saying, and other people have been saying, all these papers came out. Well, they were essentially treating the inflammatory phase with the wrong drugs. So you've got to look critically at some of these papers and understand that. So, but what I want to do is just thank my patients for allowing me to, well, for pushing me, because they refused to go to hospital, like your, your patients. And I had to figure out, well, how do I treat this obese diabetic?